Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gabby Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So this week we are discussing Tar, the critically acclaimed psychological drama written and directed by Todd Field. Kate Blanchett stars as the fictional orchestral conductor and composer Lydia Tarr, whose life and reputation descend into chaos as she prepares for an important concert. As one of the most celebrated movies of this year's awards season, Tarr has been praised for Kate Blanchett's performance, Todd Field's writing and direction, and the film's examination of cancel culture and abusive power dynamics. So yeah, we have been looking forward to talking about this for a thousand years. It came out a while ago in the US and is now available to watch online. It came out a couple months ago here in the UK. This was on my top 10 list of the year, which you can go back and listen to last week's podcast. But um, I also have like a lot more criticisms of it since I watched it, as does Morgan. So I think this is going to be an interesting discussion. We have many thoughts. <laughs> yes, and this episode will be coming out a week or two after the Academy Awards are announced, and we obviously don't know what the nominations will be, but we are assuming that Tar will be receiving a number of nominations. I mean, Kate deserves a nom, but overall, the vibe of this podcast is ambivalent. Yeah, well, so as you were saying, like, this is easily the most critically acclaimed film of the year. It has won most of the Best Picture Awards from critics' organizations. Kate Blanchett has won everything as she should. We'll obviously talk about that. I think it's her best performance that she's ever given. But as you as you said, we have more mixed feelings. I saved this to be like the last 2022 movie I watched before we recorded our top 10 episode. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> there are many things to praise about this film, which we will talk about. I found it really interesting and Part of what I appreciated about it was that it made me think, and I'm excited for us to record this episode because I think we're going to have a lot to discuss, and I always appreciate when a movie gives me something to think and talk about. But I also ultimately think this movie doesn't work on whatever terms it's kind of set out for itself. And again, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, does Todd Field really know what this movie is? Does he know what the movie's about? Well, the big message of the press tour is like, this film is ambiguous. We're never going to tell you what to think. And you're allowed to make your own opinion up on like, which side of the debate of whether Lydia's evil and you know, all this kind of stuff. We're going to go into this a lot. But like, the film's depiction of kind of generational divides and identity politics is dubious. So uh, much to consider. <laughs> also, the depiction of cancel culture you know, quote unquote, obviously not a real thing, but like of Me Too, which the movie is centrally about, I think doesn't really work, which is interesting because its depiction of power dynamics and relationships in a more specific way is really successful. It's yeah, just like then, basically like, like the central psychodrama about an abusive person in power is so good and so interesting and so balanced. And then, you know, the wider societal treatment of what happens doesn't hold together as well. But before yeah. we go into all of that and all the classical music, which listeners will understand, I'm very excited to talk about, Morgan, teach us about Todd Field, a man about whom I know very little. Yes. So I, before reading a little bit about this movie, would not have been able to tell you a great deal about Todd Field as an individual person myself, but I was very familiar with his work. I think probably younger listeners to our podcast, pretty much anyone younger than us, we're in our early 30s, 
would have had no idea who this man was before this movie came out because he has only made two movies before and they were both very critically acclaimed at the time, but they came out in the early and mid aughts. So his movie In the Bedroom came out in 2001. I have seen that movie, but I don't remember it very well at all. Like, I don't feel comfortable (laughs) giving a summary, (laughs) but it got nominated for many Academy Awards, including Best Picture. It's a kind of like chamber piece drama about like middle-aged people. I watched it as a teenager and I think it kind of went over my head. Stars Marissa Tomei and Cece Spacek and Tom Wilkinson and someone else. I bet you if I watched that now, I would be like, wow, fantastic movie. And then Little Children came out in 2006 and that stars Kate Winslet and Patrick Wilson as these um, suburban parents not married to each other in New Jersey, I believe, who wind up having an affair. It's got noir qualities to it, but the characters are also kind of ultimately a bit pathetic. It's based on a Tom Parada novel. I watched that at the time as a teenager, and it was the period when Kate Winslet was sort of like the dominant respected actress in Hollywood. And so that was a big deal. And I really loved that movie. I haven't seen it in a long time. And again, 2006, and then he just went away. And I remember sort of seeing stories in Variety periodically that he was developing something. And there is a good interview that he did with Michael Shulman and The New Yorker about sort of like what he's been doing in the interim. And it's definitely not that he just stopped working, although part of his disappearance was that he was raising his children, but that he was developing project after project after project that just never came to fruition, which is something that can happen. But he also just has like a fascinating personal backstory. I really recommend this interview. We'll link to it, obviously. He didn't set out as a teenager to be like, I must become a film director. There's this long story about him being involved in, I don't know if it's minor league or like sub minor league baseball, and like coming up with the idea for big league chew, which is a very successful baseball gum brand. (laughs) Sure. Okay. On his Wikipedia page, it's the sort of thing where you're just like, excuse me? Like, what? <laughs> what? He wanted to be a jazz trombonist, study that for a while. I like this. This is a true polymath, because until you've invented a sports-themed gum as well as being a professional musician, I don't think you've really fully rounded yourself out. Yeah. And so then when he was 19, he moved to New York, and he decides to become an actor. He works as a bartender for a while. He gets cast in a Woody Allen movie as a Frank Sinatra lookalike, which like the levels of that situation, no comment. And then he does more acting in the 90s. And then the sort of thing that probably people have seen in the press is that he had a part in Eyes Wide Shut, but Tom Cruise while he was making that movie. And Tom Cruise was like, you're going to be a director. Like I've decided... I'm just going to quote from this. They had dinner and Tom Cruise told him, you're going to make movies. Field said that he had an idea based on a 1979 short story by Andre Dubout, but he probably couldn't get the rights. I also think he'd already been to film school by this point, but I have sort of lost the thread of the chronology because so many things happened to this man in like the first 20 years of his life. Cruise laid his megawatt can-do attitude on him. You're just making excuses figure it out. And then he made it in the bedroom. And there's a great anecdote in here that was going around on Twitter where Harvey Weinstein bought the movie after it had premiered to great reviews at Sundance. And 
Field was like, oh shit, you know, Harvey Weinstein's gonna destroy my movie. So he calls up Tom Cruise <laughs> and tells him, and Cruise says, this is how you're going to play it. It's going to take you six months and you'll beat him. You have to do exactly what I'm going to tell you step by step. And he outwitted Harvey Weinstein using Tom Cruise's advice. The movie got a bunch of Oscar nominations. And then he was like on the path to becoming this big successful director, except that then there was this bizarre 16 year break. And definitely the impression from this interview is that he just like can't believe what has happened to him. Which is very understandable, because this movie is now, like, the darling of award season. Everyone's talking about it. Everyone's arguing about it. And he's just been, like, living in Maine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the origin story of this is he wrote it during the pandemic, specifically for Cate Blanchett, with, like, a picture of Cate Blanchett on his desk to look at for inspiration. But he'd been thinking about the character of Lydia Tarr for 10 years, but, like, didn't know she was going to be in the classical music world. So he's been obsessing over her psychology for a decade before thinking of what film to put her in, which is, like, an interesting and unusual kind of artistic process. But um, then he, like, churned out that script in 12 weeks. Which is one of those things where it's, like, that's incredibly impressive, but also we have various critiques that might tie into the fact that maybe he should have like sent that around to a few more friends before plowing ahead with direction. <laughs> well, and then I think it was Focus Features sort of asked him to write something and then he wrote it and then they were like, great, we want to make it. And he was like, what? <laughs> Something's actually going to get made. So I think it definitely needed, the script definitely needed more editing. I think probably part of what happened was Focus for whatever reason was going on in their development, like they had the window, Kate Blanchett was available, whatever, I don't know, that they were just like, great, we're going to go for it. And then him, like it literally says in this article that he was almost more comfortable with stuff not getting made because he was so used to that happening. And then the prospect of actually doing something was a little bit terrifying, which again, I completely understand. I mean, honestly, congrats to him on remembering how to direct and not only doing that, but like fucking directing an orchestra and stuff. I mean, he is also a musician and apparently composer, so he knows what's up, but like, it's it's a lot. It's interesting, the sort of list of failed projects, it's all stuff with really big celebrities and famous actors. So like he was going for big names and at some point points actively developing things with them. So it's clear that like his goal during this period was not just to get something made. It was like he wanted to get something made that was going to be big. Because I would pretty much guarantee that if he had really desperately wanted to make a movie above anything else, he could have done something with like a very talented theater actor or something who like wasn't as famous and the budget was going to be tiny or whatever. But he wanted to make a, you know, he put a He's picture like, of Kate Blanchett. He's like, I want Kate Blanchett and I want yeah. the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. <laughs> and like, you know what? Godspeed to you. Because he did it. And that's chutzpah. Like, <laughs> I think that's very impressive. I mean, I'm sh- I would imagine it sort of sabotaged him in other situations. But yeah, like obviously completely worked out in this case in terms of getting the movie made and it being so widely acclaimed. So... Yeah, on that note, I will give a little bit more of an intro to what happens in this film to listeners who are not aware. Lydia Tarr is this extremely successful and acclaimed conductor and composer who is clearly like one of the biggest stars in the classical music world. And she's also relatively unusual in that she is a female conductor, which is quite rare. And the introductory scene 
is an on-stage interview with her, which is very interestingly staged. It's with like a real-life journalist playing himself. And um, you're kind of introduced to the idea of her both as this celebrity intellectual and also kind of the way that she performs as herself, because there is quite an obvious difference between the way she talks about her career on stage and talks to people in real life. But the thing that this is leading into is that prior to the pandemic, she had directed the first four of Mahler's symphonies and she's now preparing with the Berlin Philharmonic to conduct the fifth. So this is kind of her finishing this massive passion project. They're all being recorded. So it's this really high pressure, high profile job for her where she is interpreting this extremely famous and beloved piece of classical music. So that is kind of the main structure of the film is kind of built around her preparing behind the scenes for this big concert slash recording but as this is happening you're finding out more about her personal life so this is a narrative about a person in a position of power abusing people who are working with her so she's a lesbian she's married and has a kid in berlin but it quickly becomes clear that she is having affairs of one kind or another behind her wife's back and she also is the head of this mentorship project for young female conductors and has a personal assistant who is a kind of budding conductor and it seems like she is really exploiting these young women and in some cases sleeping with them and then kind of discarding them and ruining their lives so it's a very familiar narrative that we see play out and is extremely obviously kind of mapped onto the Me Too movement but it's unusual in that it's a woman who's kind of in the central villain position and also Lydia Tarr's own identity is really interestingly portrayed because she obviously is like constantly being asked in interviews and stuff about like oh her position as as a woman and like what is it like to experience sexism in the industry and obviously she's like mentoring all these young women but she like clearly doesn't really think that this is an issue and has quite a conservative mindset politically and that kind of comes to fruition quite early on because one of the biggest scenes in the movie that's been discussed a lot is her teaching a class at Juilliard the music school and she is presenting this extremely conservative position opposite a Zoomer age student who is like far more progressive to a point of being this kind of caricature of young people who are like against anything that's by an old white man. Shall we discuss that now? Is there anything else you'd like to put into the intro? Yeah, why don't we just leap in to one of the problems with this movie? The Bach scene. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think this scene is interesting. It's really compelling. Part of it fails, part of it doesn't fail and that ties into wider issues with the movie in terms of what works and what doesn't and the stuff that doesn't fail I think is tar in the scene obviously Kate Blanchett incredible in this movie we will continue to talk about her performance throughout this episode but she's being imperious and high-handed and a real asshole. I mean, it's obvious that she's not a good teacher because she is not considering (laughs) any way to nurture or educate the students. She is giving this kind of lecture from her own perspective because they're all conducting students slash musicians and this student wants to conduct a piece of music by a very popular modern composer that's quite like abstract and experimental. And Lydia Tarr is like, why don't you do Bach? (laughs) Yes. And... It's not even that her sort of being like, well, it doesn't seem like you really have anything to say about this piece of music. I mean, she delivers that in an asshole-ish manner. But like, that in itself isn't really a problem because they don't, like, none of the kids, it's one kid mainly, but like, she asks a couple of the others, like, they don't really seem to have very much to say, which is probably just because they're terrified yeah, of her, I mean, right? you put me on the spot, I'm not going to be like, oh, I've got a lot of opinions on this. <laughs> right. Basically, what happens is that this 
young student who is a person of color is sort of like, well, I can't really... I don't remember what they say exactly, but it's sort of like, like, I basically, I reject Bach because. Yeah, I mean, this student is like talking about like Bach having had like 15 kids and being this kind of old white guy and kind of talking about how all these old classical composers are not relevant or problematic. And it's like, this is a Juilliard student. It's quite hard to believe that a Juilliard student would have such a black and white idea of the kind of foundations of Western classical music. Well, and you sent me um, a good article on Wired. Again, we will link to it. Sort of saying, like, there's this trend in culture right now. And the writer, whose name I don't have off the top of my head, but um, also compared it to the Netflix show The Chair with Sandra Oh, which is about English professors and their students, and totally gets the English professor side of the show right. And then every time you show the students, you're just like, what the fuck? They're like, like characters. Like, <laughs> right. And... You just get the sense that it's these older people making art and they are kind of frustrated with stuff they're seeing on the internet. Todd Field is 58, by the way. Yes. (laughs) And want to have that in their movie show, whatever, in some capacity, but don't really actually understand the way that these these sort of Gen Z kids slash young adults are talking about this stuff. And... I don't want to just say, like, no young person thinks or talks this way. Although the the point you make about this being a Juilliard student is like, yeah, they've probably spent a lot of time with classical music. But, you know, I, as I mentioned on the show before, do a mentorship thing with teenagers. And like, this is an attitude that exists in some form, right? Like, I mentored a Korean teenage girl who was brilliant, smart, curious, but definitely had a little bit of this like, oh, if it's an old white man, like I'm not interested. And I remember having a conversation with her, this is a couple years ago, where like, I had to explain to her that like, you couldn't cancel an artist who'd been dead for like 200 years. I was like, that's just not a thing. Because that was what all of her peers at her high school were sort of talking about and she was sort of like thrilled that I would dare to suggest that like you couldn't cancel like a dead person yeah I mean also kind of the generational divide both in the film but like in real life we're kind of now at the age where we both can see ourselves distinct from youth culture like you know everyone who is a millennial is now starting to like look at people who are in their teens and 20s and be like oh, maybe they are doing something that I find really ridiculous. And it's like, that's just how generations work. And you have to find a way to balance like your own opinions and identity with respecting the fact that like when people are 18, they often have quite extreme opinions that will either become a cultural norm or kind of be chilled out a bit more once you reach your late 20s or something. Yes. That doesn't mean that these opinions should immediately be disrespected, you know? <laughs> well, but also I've mentored other young students who don't have that view at all. Yeah. But even thinking about this one person I'm thinking about, who is just like the most wonderful, like, I love her so much. But like, they read Virginia Woolf in her high school class, and she was like, totally fascinated by Mrs. Dalloway, right? Which obviously, Virginia Woolf, a female writer, but she was very racist. like you know, But that's like a sort of old classic that she got a lot out of. And so it's, I think there is a way to sort of depict some of this language that is a little bit extreme yeah right that's coming from you know tiktok or whatever but if you want to make the characters feel like real people they should be people right not just like i mean this is what we were kind of discussing earlier today before recording is that in this debate scene 
actually both sides are pretty ridiculous and kind of self-parody caricatures. But the difference is that Lydia is this incredibly well-realized character and the student is just like a walk-on kind of avatar of this opinion that young people supposedly have. And I remember after watching the movie, I kind of went on Letterboxd to see what other people were thinking. And one of the top reviews is from someone saying that like when they saw this movie, they were like, was I just in a screening full of classical music freaks? Because apparently it was just all these people kind of applauding Lydia, being like, ha ha ha, she's so right. I'm so glad she like clapped back at this idiot youth. And it's like everything she is saying in this scene is also really stupid and reductive because she is meant to be teaching a bunch of young people how to conduct pieces of music they have chosen. And what her first thing is she does is reject what the student has chosen. But also the stuff she's saying about Bach is like, they're all music students. They've all heard of Bach. He's like the number one guy. <laughs> right. But I think, and again, I mean, I know you agree with me, but it kind of works for her, yeah. right? Because well, she's we more confident. know, right. And we know she is sort of wrapped up in her own head. She doesn't really care about anyone else. She's an asshole. So her just being like, I'm going to take this opportunity to pontificate at these kids. I mean, this scene happens very early in the movie, but everything that comes later totally clicks with her behavior in that moment. Whereas this student who is one of the only people of color in the movie is to nothing. They're just there to be a punching bag. Right. And I think that that represents some of the issues with the movie. We'll obviously talk about the stuff that does work, which there's a lot, but the movie isn't all from Lydia's point of view. And in fact, it maintains a kind of careful distance from her. Like, even if it's mostly about, even if it's mostly following her, like, we don't really get inside of her head. But the frame is so sort of about what she's experiencing that it doesn't allow us to zoom out at all, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but it does mean that the movie can feel kind of myopic in its interests and understanding of the world, which when you're dealing with these larger social questions can be a problem and turns into a problem the longer the movie goes on, I think. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the way it just immerses you into all of her horrible problems, it's so kind of thrilling and emotionally impactful. It definitely kind of means that you can look past some of the problems, which is part of the reason I think where it took me like a few weeks to really start thinking like, oh, some of this stuff was bad. Like both of us had issues with the end right after watching, which we will talk about right at the end of the podcast. No spoilers yet. But um, yeah, I mean, it is like an incredibly powerful performance powerfully kind of directed and edited like it really gets to you there's parts of it where you're like I am watching a horror movie almost because it's so kind of tense and unpleasant but also like the whole discussion around this film is like oh it's so thought-provoking and it's like yeah and some of those thoughts are that parts of this probably needed a redraft (laughs) yes well why don't we talk about some of the stuff that works better um and so after this sort of opening section in New York which contains this interview that you were describing and then this sort of disastrous teaching session we go to berlin which is where she lives with her wife and child and also she's you know the conductor of her her wife is the lead violinist of the orchestra yes played by the great nina haas one of the great german actors currently working and like it took me a little bit to get into the movie i think those first two scenes with the 
interview and the class could probably have been tightened a little bit. Although overall, I think they're very immersive. I was like, I love how long the scene is. I love how long the individual <laughs> shots are. I love that they are explicitly delivering exposition to me, but in such a classy way, I'm like, ah, loved it. <laughs> but once she's sort of in her home turf in Berlin, we get to see her interacting with all of these other people who are in her orbit. Her assistant, who's played by Noemi Merlant, who is in Portrait of a Lady on Fire, is with her in New York. But I got really sucked into the movie. I mean, it's very procedural. Yes. And I love, I just love procedural stuff in art when it feels like the people making it really know what they're doing. And when that kind of small, small behavioral things are used to illuminate larger character questions, or in this case, the power dynamics that fall between these characters, right? And so it becomes very clear, very fast. I mean, from the beginning of the movie, but again, I think once we get to Berlin, we understand more deeply who this woman is, how she is manipulating all of these people around her, how she is treating some of them just straight up like shit. And then some of them, she kind of is like teasing along a little bit, but in a way that's only for her own benefit, right? I mean, she's a tyrannical boss and (laughs) artist. (laughs) And the only person she expresses any tenderness to is her daughter, who she clearly loves very sincerely. And she's just extremely disrespectful to her wife, not in a way where it's like she is being disrespectful to her face, but she's just like, she doesn't really seem to care about her. Like, obviously she's having these affairs, but she's like stealing her medication for her own benefit. Like, it's so bad. I mean, that I was just like, my God. like that's... And then lying to her about yeah. it, which is... Yeah, gaslighting I mean, her wife. <laughs> yep. But I think the movie is at its strongest when it's in the orchestra. It's so clear from the writing and mainly the performance that even though this is someone with a great amount of power and cultural prestige, that she's also just terrified all the time, which is a classic sort of like narcissistic, I don't know, double-edged sword, right? That someone can seem outwardly unbelievably confident and tyrannical, but it's all coming from a place of insecurity. And Lydia is obviously operating in that mode. And so we're both seeing her in this dominating behavior with the technicians at the orchestra. Obviously, her assistant is the sort of primary person who's getting the brunt of this. But then she'll also be kind of nice to the assistant sometimes. So it's this like push and pull thing. She can be quite gruff with the musicians themselves. And she completely controls this world because she needs an environment that is completely controlled by her or else, you know, God knows what might happen. And it's this whole system which reveres the idea of someone who is a genius tyrant. It's the classic thing. And one of the really well-articulated kind of subtext of her whole personality is that it's clear that the entire culture treats her as this incredible talent who is unique and groundbreaking and really important. Obviously part of that is the fact that she is a woman and that's unusual so she gets a bit more press attention but like everyone around her is like she's incredible and she has internalized this a great deal and has this immense kind of confidence in addition to this insecurity. Um, Also on top of like doing the 
the Mahler symphony. She's also trying to compose to herself. But like all the stuff that she is actually doing artistically in the film in terms of the the stuff that she is conducting and the music that she's really excited about is like the most conservative and basic pop classics. And it's like, it's not like this music isn't incredible, but it's like she is not doing anything that actually is particularly groundbreaking or experimental. And there's this two interesting details, one of which is that she loves Mahler and she loves Bernstein, who she kind of sees as her predecessor and is like, kind of refers to him as her mentor, but obviously they clearly didn't meet, you know. But the difference between them is like, first of all, Mahler existed in this completely different historical period where classical music was like the centre of music culture. And he was working as a conductor and a composer. But like in the present day, there's no equivalent to that. She is not making popular music. She is directing someone else's music from a different historical era. And in terms of Bernstein, Bernstein was absolutely fascinated by a wide and diverse array of music culture that was existing around him, was like fascinated by the cultural background of music. And he kind of loved to educate people and had this really kind of socially conscious and heavily political attitude. Like he was a really politically involved guy. He was very progressive. And also he was this famed music educator. And obviously the reason why she was encountering him as a youth is because she was accessing the lectures and concerts for children that he was producing. So he had a full heart towards the world. Like he really wanted to teach people and like bring classical music to the populace. And it's like, she does not at all do any of that stuff. She is just like rejecting new music completely, disrespecting young people, has no interest in helping people and is actively exploiting the young women who are viewing her as an idol. So it's like, she has this total sense of hypocrisy, both creatively and morally compared to these like old dead white guys that she reveres. Well, also, Bernstein was a genius as a composer as well, right? Famously. The film doesn't really show much of her original music. The composer for the film is Hildur Gonadotir, who won an Oscar a few years ago. Great composer. But they carefully only show, like, snippets of the music that she composes in the film. Like, you can listen to the score, like, the soundtrack album for the film. But it's like, the stuff that she is composing is, of course, modern contemporary minimalist orchestral music so it's like you can't compose like Bernstein or Mahler because they're from a different historical era and she doesn't have the confidence to be like I'm doing something explosively new or popular so and and she can barely compose at all I mean like yeah there are all these scenes of her in her second apartment that she maintains like pressing one key of a piano yeah, in order to have affairs. And she's, again, you got like, ding, ding, ding. Like, it's just like not, I mean, she can't do it. I think the depiction of music in the movie is really interesting because I think you can tell when she's conducting that she is incredibly good at that, even if she's not a good boss. Like she, I don't know anything about conducting. I don't know very much about classical music at all, but it's obvious that she's not like a total fraud. Like yeah. she I mean, clearly she has does an immense have- sense of precision which also yes. is like encapsulating the rest of her life because she's like obsessive about what she wears and what she eats and like controlling everything. Yeah. And there is obviously an immense talent and a genius for interpreting the work of other people that is very important for like maintaining cultural history. But we don't really get a sense of like what music means to her, right? There's a little bit of this right at the end, which we'll talk about at the end, but I kind of didn't buy it because, I mean, the movie is a very cold 
film, which I overall think is to its credit, like it's aesthetically like there aren't very many close ups. It kind of stays away. She from has her an amazing apartment just... in Berlin. They have this like horrible. It's oh beautiful, God. but it's so unpleasant to live in because it's this enormous like minimalist apartment full of all these angles and concrete and expensive furniture it's, and it's like you it's have like a seven-year-old child i know <laughs> oh my god that poor girl. <laughs> but um that first interview scene where she's kind of performing her own celebrity she's talking about music in this very kind of pat way but like why does she love this why is she doing this and obviously there is some reason but it's not sort of clear, yeah. which I actually think is a one of the ambiguities of the movie that I think is sort of constructive because it's not as though we're watching her and thinking this is just someone who music is just inside her so profoundly that like, of course, this is what she has to do with her life. It kind of like, I don't know. I mean, she's very good at it. She likes to have a job where she can control lots of people. Right. She's very ambitious. But yeah, I mean, the way in which she loves music is very internal and also possibly kind of hidden in an earlier era of her life that we don't see. Yeah. And she does talk about Bach very passionately in that teaching scene. But the fact that this is sort of empty in a way and all about her own personal fame and validation feels very pointed in a way that I think is more successful than some of the other stuff the movie's kind of trying to say. And I think, obviously, a lot of that goes to Blanchett's performance, which is just masterful and terrifying. I mean, if I saw this woman in an alley, I would be like, I'm running in the other direction. Like, get me out of here. (laughs) And... I think she manages to both convey this sort of charisma that a person like this needs to have, right? In order to become this successful and famous in sort of a niche form, you have to be a big personality. Like, people have to be drawn to you. Yeah. Which is like, she's Kate Blanchett. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, obviously she's always charismatic and compelling, but like... There's something about the specific way that she wields that in this role. I mean, it's a real power lesbian role to begin with. Yes. And she's sort of like, yeah, I'm not friendly, but like, aren't I great? In a way where that's kind of how she's getting away with doing these teaching. Yeah. It's kind of the same old story. It's like some horrible like monster. And it's like, well, you know, you got to pay your dues to get their respect. And it's like, do you? (laughs) Yeah. And you can... Also, I think, understand why, you know, musicians in the orchestra would want to play well for her, in addition to just, like, wanting to do their jobs well. Like, she's commanding. But also, such a fucking bitch. Like, she just is awful. And underneath that all is this sense of sort of terror and insecurity that builds and builds and builds over the course of the film. Yeah. And there's also this interesting kind of gender element where she is like, she has a very kind of like traditionally gendered marriage where she is kind of the husband. There's a scene where she goes to confront a child who's bullying her daughter, which is absolutely incredible, hilarious scene. But she like refers to herself as Petra's father 
And that's like the role that she puts herself in. Obviously, she wears these incredible trouser suits all the way through the film, which are meticulously tailored. I love that detail because it is reminding us that the only way you can look like that is by having someone cut every individual piece of fabric to fit your body. It's like, yeah, you can't just buy one. Uh, (laughs) It's not so much that she is like, I am positioning myself as part of the kind of butch queer community identity. It's more that she feels much closer to men, not in the sense at all that she is characterized as trans or non-binary. It's more like she just loves the power that role gives her and all the people she looks up to are men. And she sees these young female protégés as essentially disposable in the same way that we often see with men in power abusing younger women. Because she also has this old mentor who is played by the actor Julian Glover, basically had the same role as her, the former conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic and there's a few scenes where she has lunch with him and it's clear that like he's had a few scandals up his sleeve but it was back in the day so it doesn't matter as much and like their conversations are so funny because they'll be talking about oh yeah you know there was this old composer and like sure he was a Nazi and that sort of thing (laughs) and so he's like the previous generation and she's kind of pushing him back against his most unpleasant opinions but at the same time part of the reason why she cares for him so much like he's probably the person she visibly cares for the most apart from her daughter. And I think it's just because she sees her own future in him. Like she is basically caring for him and his legacy. She's paying for his car service and sort of making sure he's not being forgotten by the orchestra. And I think it's very much because like she's subconsciously kind of seeing herself aging and is worried that she is going to end up in that position. Yes. I mean, I found those scenes really interesting because she both is sort of challenging him in a child to parent yeah. way, right? It's not a real challenge. Also looking for him for validation that her behavior is okay implicitly. But there's a thing with narcissists where they can be very loyal to certain people, especially kind of mentor figures. And I think the fact that we do see that she has real affection, if limited, for this guy and then obviously her daughter in a different way is useful in making her feel fully rounded, even though I think she clearly is like evil. (laughs) Right? You know, because that gets to the idea of her having weaknesses. Like I think she probably in some way views caring for people as being like a weakness, though maybe not consciously. And that scene you mentioned where she threatens the kid on the playground who has been bullying her daughter, which is just like, it's so I mean, good. <laughs> oh my god, incredibly funny. Kate Blanchett, that scene, sublime. But it's again like her taking power over the whole dynamic around her daughter, right? As opposed to if the daughter is being really badly bullied, then maybe you go to the principal and say like, why don't we have a meeting with the parents to try to figure something out? Not that she should just do nothing, but. She has to be in charge. If anything wrong happens with her daughter, it's like she's going to stop it by exerting this power that she has in such an over-the-top terrifying way toward a tiny child. And it's also like because she has no interest in or respect for the concept of identity politics, she's not considering the fact that like part of her daughter's situation is complicated by the fact that her daughter is Syrian. She's an adopted kid. Oh, yeah. So I it's mean, like, yeah, you know, that's... that's obviously much of why this kid is probably being bullied in this rich school full of blonde German kids. Yes. 
that's not, yeah, it's not even implicit. I mean, clearly not occurring to her. But I mean, she clearly does really love her daughter, but that reflects an attitude of like possessiveness too, right? Yeah, I mean, her daughter is still at the age where she's not rebelling yet. So she can be like, this is yeah. my perfect little angel. Well, look forward to how your kid feels in like 10 years when they are like, fuck you, you're a narcissist who constantly cheated on my mother. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's that's not going to end well. So even in that most pure relationship, she kind of can't behave correctly, right? Like, it's just all or nothing. And I think that scene is so important in terms of us understanding her character and behavior, as well as being tremendously entertaining. And she has similarly just, like, no scruples about dealing with anyone else in the orchestra. She wants to get rid of the assistant conductor, and the manner in which she fires him is unpleasant, you know, she sort of tries to be politic about it and then just dominates again. <laughs> yeah. And then he basically is like, we all know about you and these young women. And she uses that to then sort of further bully him. And that is shot all from like a long shot from the other side of the office. A lot of these scenes are shot kind of from a distance, which I think works really well. Because again, we're just watching this whole yeah dynamic unfold. I mean, I think we should go on and talk more about the Me Too stuff and then discuss yeah. the spoilery ending. But before we do that, I just want to put one more note that I really liked about her characterization is her vocabulary. She has this very deep intellectual vocabulary that she is constantly pulling out all the way through, uh, sometimes as an intimidation tactic, but it's coupled with just like massive holes in her general knowledge and incredibly stupid decision making, which is just, I thought, just a really great combination of factors. Because it's like, what does smart even mean? Like there's, you know, she hasn't heard of International Women's Day and someone's like, oh, there's really famous communists. It's like, she's not heard of her. But she really loves to really fucking crush people with a word that no one else has heard of. She also constantly calls people robots. That's her like little rage insult. She's like, oh, there's just a bunch of robots. <laughs> yeah, and like why? It's such an interesting insult from someone who clearly wants to be an original seen. artist who also their yes. entire career is based on interpreting other people's work. Right. But the sort of intelligence thing is interesting because she clearly is really brilliant. It's just a lack of interest in the other stuff that you were mentioning. Like she just hasn't bothered. The classic Sherlock Holmes doesn't know that the earth orbits the sun situation. <laughs> yeah. And you definitely get the sense that when she was young and coming up, she exploited the fact that she was a woman and probably at some point a lesbian. We don't know sort of any details about when she came out or whatever in order to further her career, right? In terms of there's talk about this mentorship program that she runs. And now that she's kind of gotten to the place she wants to be, she has no interest in yeah continuing any of that or being identified with and she's that. openly disrespecting other female composers because yeah in the classroom scene at the beginning the composer that the student wants to use is i've forgotten her name it's an icelandic composer whose first name is anna she's a very successful composer and lydia tar literally like insults her appearance kind of implies that the fact that this composer is good looking makes her more likely to be successful it's just like oh this music just sounds like the orchestra tuning up and it's like she is a widely regarded composer and you are also conventionally attractive. So, you know, 
Well, she, she also refers to herself as a U-Haul lesbian yeah. in that scene. And it's like, you you have, when was the last time you saw a U-Haul? Yeah. Like, please get <laughs> out of nonsense. here. <laughs> but that's, again, it's sort of like, she'll use that when it's convenient, yeah. right? But she doesn't really want to be seen as like the female conductor, which, I mean, that's a valid argument to be like, well, I would rather just be assessed on my own Absolutely. merit. But she has no interest in helping anyone from any kind of, you know, minority background. Yeah. And her personal assistant is clearly this accomplished kind of trainee composer who is, she is using very explicitly just as a personal assistant. And like this woman is organizing her entire calendar. It's a classic situation where like, of course, she's relying on her entirely. But also we should talk about Olga because one of the major precipitating incidents for kind of the central part of the story is obviously the concert is going to be Mahler's fifth but they're also going to have another piece in there too and they're auditioning new cellists to join the cello section collectively and Lydia spots that one of them is a hot young girl (laughs) and like this is actually part where it was simultaneously like interesting way they've done this and also this isn't how they would do it because famously for auditions they have it with a screen And also women are not meant to wear heels. So the people who are listening to the audition can't hear whether it's a woman or not. But like this student has very clicky clacky heels. So Kate Blanchett can hear who it is and then picks her. And like she is this incredibly talented cellist and like gets the job and is really excited. But it's very obvious that Lydia is targeting her as her next girl. And then proposes out of nowhere, why don't we have Elgar's cello concerto? And this completely fucks over the lead cellist for the orchestra, who would obviously be the person who's doing that, because she's like, oh, I think we should audition all the cellists instead. So it's immediately this like horrible thing to do with this person you've presumably been working with for years. Incidentally, the head of the cello section is just a real cellist, not an actor, as is one of the other main guys in the orchestra, like Knut. I love this detail. Like finding out they weren't actors was amazing because they're so good. But the girl who plays... Olga is also a cellist for whom this is her first time acting role. They were kind of auditioned actors and then they decided they wanted to audition musicians as well. So she kind of was just doing Zoom interviews to be a film star while like being a 19 year old cello student. Love this. Her name is Sophie Cower. She's very funny, but she's such a good counterpoint to Tar because it's completely unclear to what extent she knows whether Lydia is attempting to prey on her. You can either interpret it as her just cheerfully stonewalling her in, or just like not knowing, but she is like so fun and confident and youthful and just really excited for the opportunity. And because... Lydia's in the early stages of the predation process. She's not at the point where she's doing anything explicit. So she's just sort of like hanging out with her in private for rehearsals and giving her this cool opportunity. We get to the point in the story where some of her other allegations start to come forward. Women are starting to come forward and be like, Lydia Tarr abused me or like fucked over my career. There's a young woman who is clearly being like very unhappy with her for the whole film and is this sort of lingering presence in the background of the narrative who's this sort of stalker figure but in the middle of this scandal Lydia goes to New York for a book launch and then brings Olga the cellist as her like assistant because her own assistant has already quit and it's like obviously Olga is not doing anything she's just there to party in New York but clearly Lydia has other expectations and it's just like it's such a good interesting social dynamic because it's like in this one particular instance you've got this young woman who just isn't in a position to feel like she's in danger so she's kind of immune from this situation (laughs) well i think what exactly has happened at that point 
And obviously we're getting into spoiler territory, but we'll tell you when we start fully discussing the ending, which is like a another <laughs> thing. It's really just one prior student who is like the problem for her in terms of like lawsuits, reputation, etc., who was an accordion fellow at one of her other sort of fellowships. Um, she started out playing the accordion, we discover, which I think is a great little detail. And then also was sort of trained to be a conductor and had been sending these desperate emails that the assistant was dealing with. And then two thirds of the way through the movie, maybe we find out that she has committed suicide. And then it sort of starts to break as news that there was this sort of exploitative relationship. And conveniently, Lydia also has a book coming out like the same week, which is why she's going to New York. So there are all of these protesters outside of like the little Juilliard room where she's having her book reading. And in the middle of this scandal, she's like, I'm going to bring this 19 year old who I've been actively preying on, although nothing has happened yet. And like, it's so unbelievably stupid that it's kind of breathtaking, but I think it's it's real. Perfect. It's real to me. <laughs> Absolutely. It's like you have no control over your own behavior. Yeah. I mean, it's just Ezra Miller continuing to do crimes just like nonstop. Yeah, like she just and it's it's manifestly apparent that this is going to be a massive problem for her reputationally and in terms of like, you know, lawsuits. And yet she just doesn't seem to be able to process this in part because so she's so fixated in this Mahler concert and so fixated on this girl meanwhile her wife Nina Haas is like watching everything happen <laughs> from the sidelines one of my critiques is that I think Nina Haas needed like one or two more big scenes and I suspect there was some stuff that was cut because there's some Stuff that's like references her family that doesn't really get fully explained. But the screen time she does have, she is a powerhouse. She is otherwise best known probably for collaborating a lot with Christian Petzold, particularly the movie Phoenix, which I'm sure I've mentioned on this podcast multiple times. One of my favorite movies Morgan of the past Haas's 15 number years. One <laughs> when I heard she was cast in this, I was like, yes. And so... My love for her, I'm sure, is contributing also to me being like, I wanted her to be in the movie more. <laughs> Though I do think she needed to be in the movie a little bit more. But she is great at sort of reacting without saying anything. She's just like witnessing all of this happening. And the fact that they also work together makes this, A, way more brazen that the predation is happening in their own workplace. And B, just like way more complicated for their marriage and then her career as a violinist. I mean, there's definitely a situation where, you know, you learn that at the beginning of their relationship, Lydia's wife is doing all this work to help her settle into the orchestra. So like she was exploiting this woman professionally before they got married. And she still acts as kind of a go-between between Lydia and the orchestra. It's really a textbook example of when there's one of these sort of tyrannical artist types who is relying on their wife as the administrator. (laughs) In addition to her wife obviously being a world-class violinist because she is the lead violin of the Berlin Philharmonic (laughs) and is raising their child. (laughs) Yeah, she's clearly doing by far more of the maternal work with the kid. She's on beta blockers because I assume being married to Lydia Tarr is not 
not um, unstressful. And there's one fantastic scene with the two of them once this scandal is all kind of broken, where she basically is just like, this is not what we agreed to. And like, I understood that we basically had a transactional relationship, but like, this isn't gonna cut it. And fuck you, essentially. While Lydia attempts to sort of like weasel her way out of it in a way that feels increasingly pathetic as the movie goes on. Yeah, which sort of approaches the end. I mean, she basically starts just breaking down a little bit. There's a great scene where she's staying in her second apartment and the neighbors <laughs> ask her to keep the like rehearsing down because they're trying to show it yeah. for you know, potential buyers. And then she just starts like loudly playing the accordion, like howling. People have been talking about how funny this movie is. I think it has its moments, but I didn't find it like overly hilarious. That moment, I literally was like laughing out loud. It's so good. It's so funny. My couch. (laughs) Very funny. Great moment for Kate. But then she really loses it. And that is when we get to the end, which is the source of most of this film's problems. Yeah. I mean, so... There's definitely, like, a few people who are not into the ending. We are not entirely alone. But for the most part, this film is really receiving critical adoration. And I was kind of surprised because, like, I'd been avoiding all of the reactions until I saw it. And then literally my first reaction after watching this film was, oh, it's incredible. But the final kind of act, the final 10 to 15 minutes is just really mistaken and problematic politically on several different levels and I just remember like you know I talked to you and then you saw it and you were like yeah exactly the same problems there's like a final section which is a drastic turnaround from the rest of the film but the part leading up to that is basically this scandal really comes to a head she ends up having to sort of meet with her PR people and is fired from her job she's clearly being cancelled in the public eye this is really bad for her career and then she goes back to her childhood home to recuperate and we find out that um she's from like staten island she comes from this like relatively modest background and her original name was linda there's also this really brief confrontation with her somewhat estranged brother where there's a really terrible line that i kind of view as the turning point for when the film starts to go bad but i can't remember what the line is he says something to her about how like well, you're always, you've always been trying to like hide something or other. Or- yeah, it's like the only corny line of the film, basically. Telling her what her emotional yeah. problem is explicitly, which the movie otherwise yeah, doesn't Yeah, it's like do very subtle and well articulated elsewhere. But yeah, I hadn't thought about this at all, but something interesting that you pointed out is that it's kind of a bit implausible for her. A, to cover up this modest background because like America loves rags to riches stories, but B, to actually even be able to cover that up. And kind of the implication is that the accent on tar is like fake to make her sound more European. Obviously her her accent is fake. She's got this uh, mid-Atlantic vocal accent. But um, yeah, she's kind of created this persona to cover up the fact that she just comes from this really modest, normal background. So essentially what happens is we've got all this build up to this scandal, right? And we see the beginning of the scandal start to break. Like we see the protesters outside of Juilliard. But the part of the style of the movie is that it will cut between scenes in an abrupt way, which I think overall works quite well because it's not trying to sort of spoon feed you anything. And I like a movie that makes me work a little bit, but it starts rushing around this point and really rushes through her getting fired from her job and also doing this deposition for this lawsuit. I assume it's a civil lawsuit from the family, but I don't know because that's not explained. 
And then after that is when the movie really goes off the rails. You've described this scene in her childhood home, which completely just like, it felt like someone was like scratching nails on a blackboard. I was like, that's wrong. It's like, we don't need to recontextualize this part. (laughs) Well, there's also, um, there's a really good review by Phoebe Chen in The Nation, where she talks about how, for the most part, the movie really rejects the concept of backstory, right? Like, we don't know anything about this woman i mean we know her like resume because that's given to us right at the beginning of the film but it's like a strength of the movie that it's not really interested in her childhood or her parents or any of that freudian stuff right a study of her behavior and then we get this one awkward scene where she's in her childhood home watching this you know leonard bernstein tape has her childhood music metal around her neck and the previous scene she had literally like a tackled mark strong who plays a sort of a wannabe conductor who works for like the money men that fund her concerts. So like he's replaced her and she's enraged because he's basically stolen her work. Right. She like tackles him on stage. And I was like, okay, number one, I know she used to work here, but she would definitely be barred from the building. So like, how did she get inside? And that couple of scenes, I was like, we've suddenly entered the territory of melodrama. Right. Whatever happened to Baby Jane, like Victorian mad woman, right? Like literally her putting her fucking childhood medal around her neck. Like that is not normal behavior. This is the pivot where like we get to the final act, which is the really bad part. I have more thoughts before we get to the really bad part. But clearly she's losing it a little bit or like becoming a little bit mentally unstable because this is all very stressful. And I think the part where she's kind of staying alone in her second apartment is antagonizing the neighbors with the accordion. All of that totally works. It's not like she's totally lost her mind. It's that she's acting a little bit more (laughs) than normal, right? Like she's being antagonistic to other people in a way that's a little more upfront than her usual mode, but it doesn't feel unrealistic. Whereas tackling Mark Strong on stage at the Berlin Phil is like, that's a little bit excessive. And I also think for this movie that's supposedly all about like Me Too and these power dynamics, to shy away from actually investigating like what would happen when the shit hits the fan is just weird. I don't think it's that the movie is trying to be like, well, we don't really want to see the worst stuff. Like clearly this woman's horrible. But It just doesn't really make sense narratively to me. Yeah, I mean, one of my reactions to this after watching was the whole film is about her behaviour and her breakdown and like eventual revelations, right? Which is a whole story in itself. And the story of what happens after those revelations come in is a completely separate story, which to give it justice, you'd have to do another feature film on because it's basically a different narrative and it's talking about different people because the film is so good when it's talking about her relationships with the people in her immediate vicinity. But there's just not enough room in the film to go and expand that into the culture at large. Whenever it attempts to do that, it doesn't really work. And then when you get to this final act, as you say, it's rushing. And then it ends up in this finale, which both doesn't make sense and is kind of clumsy and kind of offensive as well in this final act because she can like no longer get work as a conductor in her normal zone which is completely plausible like obviously there are situations where extremely horrible evil famous hollywood abusers are still getting work most of them are but like i can easily imagine the classical music sphere rejecting her even if it's only for a year or so but her response to this is like oh i need like a a reset so she goes to an unidentified asian country 
where she kind of ends up conducting a youth orchestra. But we see the sequence of five to ten minutes where she's moved to this city and there's a point where she goes for a massage and then doesn't realise that she's accidentally gone and done some sex tourism because it turns out it's actually a brothel and then she throws up in shock because she realises that like, oh no, these women are being shown to her as objects and it's like, well, I don't think that's her guilt because she doesn't feel any guilt about the other women but like she's shocked because, you know, it's a whole thing. You can kind of interpret that different ways. And then the final scene of the film is her getting ready for a concert and then you see she's conducting video game music for like a youth orchestra and I can kind of see where the director is coming from this but this entire final act is just using this totally unidentified South Asian country as like a backdrop for her where the characters aren't really treated as people and it's just really loose and poorly thought out compared to the part of the story that's about characters with personalities who are related to her in some relevant way so it's like You don't make a whole story and then move the main character into a completely different, irrelevant location for a story with a different emotional tone for the final five minutes. (laughs) Yeah, so before I had seen this movie, you had told me you didn't like the ending. Another friend had told us she didn't like the ending. And um, I had also seen some tweets by the critic Ian Wang. He had taken a screenshot of the filming locations IMDb section. I don't know if this is who puts this information in there, but they're like very specific locations in Germany and New York City, like a specific hotel in New York and some palace in Germany. I don't know. It's in Dresden. I, I've never been to Dresden, so I don't know. And then it just says Southeast Asia. <laughs> and it's like, like, maybe the Philippines, but like, it's not explained. <laughs> yeah, so... He then tweeted, has anyone worked out which country it's meant to be? LOL. Lots of Thai names in the credits, but they referenced the Marlon Brando film, which I, hearing that was like, I guess it's the Philippines because that's where Apocalypse Now shot. But most people aren't going to know that. And it's certainly not like immediately off the top of their head be like, aha, of course, it's the Philippines. The movie's not interested in the Philippines as a place, right? So it's kind of irrelevant anyway. And he continues, and apparently some characters speak Tagalog. Feel like the ambiguity says a lot about the film's priorities, which I think is a great assessment of just like what is going on here in terms of Todd Field obviously either already knew a lot about New York and Berlin and that sort of the musical scenes there or did the research or whatever. Talk to people, I don't know. But you really feel like you're embedded in those places when you're in them in the movie. And the characters in both places. I mean, we talked about the sort of problem with that teaching scene at the beginning, but the scene in New York with Mark Strong, him being this sort of pathetic, he's just like a pathetic fan, basically. It completely makes sense in the context of the way she's moving around New York as like a famous person visiting and dealing with business and whatever there. And to then in the last 15 minutes, go to this unnamed country in Southeast Asia, basically as her punishment, right? And have all of the actors playing the other characters in this unspecified country totally act as props. I thought sucked. Like, I just thought that that was gross. Yeah, I mean, either they are extras or they're sort of deferentially welcoming her to her great new job. Yeah, no one is a character. The scene where she she wants a massage for like her, she's hurt her shoulder and then she gets taken to this massage parlor that's obviously like a sex massage parlor. And her being like, oh God, I was like, are we supposed to think she's guilty? Like that clearly doesn't make sense. Like I just found that whole scene 
kind of yeah i mean bizarre it makes sense for her to be shocked because like she doesn't consider what she previously did to be bad but like it definitely i don't think it can possibly be her having a moral come to jesus moment because that would be ridiculous but then what is that scene doing exactly like it just it's it's like we don't need to point out to the audience that she has been dehumanizing these young women and the way to do it is just to have this scene with like a bunch of young asian women in like a fish tank while Kate Blanchett stares at them and I was like you're making a comment while also using these women as props like no (laughs) yeah it really turned my stomach but I also thought it was just um bad (laughs) like I was just like I because I hadn't been as like emotionally gripped or moved by the first you know 75% of the movie as some of the other movies I really loved this year but I was certainly riveted watching it. I admired it. And I thought Blanchett, I still think, I mean, I think Blanchett is absolutely incredible in this movie. And then it was like, suddenly we were in a different movie that just like sucked. And I was like, what is happening? And I think a lot of it is down to what we were kind of alluding to at the beginning, which is, does Todd Field like totally know what he's made? Does like, what exactly is he trying to say? And I don't think, every work of art at all has to like have a message or like be saying some very specific concrete thing. But it just didn't really feel to me like he grasped what Me Too is and how it has functioned culturally. He clearly understands these power relationships in sort of more minute form because he displays them really effectively in the movie. But I was watching this and I was like, there's no fucking way this woman who is so high on her own prestige would go to the Philippines or wherever to conduct a video game orchestra. Like there's just no fucking way that that would ever happen. That's I mean, she has money. She'd sit at home and compose quietly. Right. And I also think that making a movie about this phenomenon and being like, and it ends with this predator having her life destroyed is absurd (laughs) because that is not what happens as we have seen for the past five and a half years, right? Harvey Weinstein's life was destroyed and he's pretty much the only one. Bill Cosby's about to go on tour again. He's what? Sure is, my friend. Like, (laughs) No. (laughs) Yep. And so to me, I was thinking about this afterward and it was funny. I was talking to you and then another friend about sort of like, what Lydia Tarr would do and like what she got her EGOT for. And you were like, we're descending to like fan fiction brain thinking about this. And I think that's in a way a credit to the movie because she feels like such a real person. But it also means that then the end feeling wrong is really, really glaring, right? And I said to you and another friend of ours, like what would happen is, so even if she gets fired, which the Met in New York and the New York Philharmonic both, I think had like massive scandals of this type and it took them a long time to fire the relevant people but um say she gets fired she then moves to italy or france where famously nobody gives a shit about this stuff right there are always going to be rich people who want to be near someone who is a quote-unquote genius right and there would be young people who would be acolytes who wouldn't believe the stories especially because she's a woman especially because she's a lesbian right Obviously, there would be more people online who'd be like, fuck this woman. But there would be some people who would be willing to be like, well, but if I can learn from Lydia Tarr, or if I can be around Lydia Tarr, or if I can sleep with Lydia Tarr, like that would happen. 
And then she'd come back like two years later and she'd be totally fine. But you could show in the movie the sense of like, she's lost her family. She's lost her daughter, which we do know that she cares about. Like you can show consequences, but the consequences are never material in the way that this movie kind of proposes that they are. And I think that that's where it completely falls down in terms of purporting to sort of understand or depict this societal moment that we're in, because that's not reality. Yeah. I have, in fact, as you were saying this, while obviously I was paying full attention to you, I was also Googling what (laughs) happened to a couple of famous composers who were made a lot of headlines during the period when everyone was being revealed as rapists. Charles Dutrois and Daniel Gatti were both really big conductors. Sexual assault allegations came out in 2018. Charles Dutrois, I think, is the one who had a lot more, quite a lot of quite serious ones, both working. They're back. Yeah. <laughs> so one of these guys uh, just been hired for somewhere in Dresden to go and do some conducting. And the other one seems to be the co-director of the Shanghai Mesa Festival and a conductor of the St. Petersburg Philharmonic. So he's back too. So they're both back and fucking powering through. So that's how they're doing. Yeah. And I think what we've seen of this woman in this movie, again, which is to Field and Blanchett's credit that she feels so plausible, is that... She's not going to fucking accept that she's been sort of demoted yeah. culturally. Because I think this right? final scene, I think the purpose of it is to be like, oh, actually, we're puncturing the idea of her being a unique genius. And actually, without all of her reputation and stuff, she's just this person who can do a job pretty well. And there's this absurd theatricality to the way she presents herself to the world. And it's like, all oh, that's true. But for the reasons Morgan just articulated, it doesn't actually make sense in reflecting our current culture and what people can get away with. And I think also the idea or like the, and I've talked to people who did like the ending um, and their kind of interpretation of it, I think is more of like, well, she just has to be working. And I absolutely don't believe based on the rest of the movie that she cares more about conducting an orchestra than her reputation. I mean, she wrote a book called Tar on Tar. (laughs) Literally. And it's reputationally worse to be conducting a video game orchestra than to just go to the south of France for a year and sulk, right? There's also, we should mention, like, a theory out there that the last 45 minutes of the movie is all in her head, which I think is stupid. I will say also, the thing about people thinking she's a real person, obviously the characterization and Kate Blanchett's performance are incredible. She's so good in this movie, as we've said many times. But also the whole thing was like, oh, I thought she was real and people Googling to see if she's real and talking about it with Todd Field and interviews and stuff. Less to do with the film itself and more indicative of the fact that everyone just thinks that the only type of movie that isn't a franchise is a biopic. Yeah. If it's an Oscar film that's about one person who has a distinctive personality, it must be a biopic. And it's like, well, two points there. If we go back to like 30 years ago, there's millions of movies like this that are a psychological character study. And also, if this was a biopic, it'd be a lot worse. No biopic in existence is as psychologically astute as this <laughs> film because they're all fucking stupid. <laughs> yeah, um, only Todd Haynes is allowed to do biopics. I do think that must be very, very strange for Todd Field to be like, what is happening? He's also like, have you considered Googling it? Like going to the Wikipedia page of the film and discovering that she's a fictional character? <laughs> I guess the last note I would want to say is I we didn't talk about Noemi Merlant very much, who plays the sort of beleaguered assistant, but I think she's excellent in this movie. Again, in a role where she's mostly reacting. So it's she doesn't say very much. It's mostly just shots of her face kind of being like, 
yes, I totally agree with you. I mean, you. Or truly like whatever. queen of films about the lesbian artistic process. This and Portrait of a Lady on Fire couldn't make two more different movies, but she's in both of them and I love her. Yeah, um, Nina Haas understandably is getting all the sort of supporting actress talk because she plays the wife and has like a big dramatic scene. But I think Marilyn is doing something really important for the movie, which is like illustrating the existence and experience of the employee of the terrible, terrible boss, right? And she's, you know, the one who eventually leaks all the stuff to the press, which is like a fantasy. (laughs) A fantasy that we've all had about our terrible bosses. But, uh... I mean, obviously, we both definitely recommend watching this if you haven't seen it, um, even though we have mixed feelings. Super interesting and thought-provoking. We know this came out a few months ago, but we figured that Tar Fever had not yet totally left the movie-going public, um, so we hope you've enjoyed. Before or after this episode goes up around this time, a Patreon-only episode about the 1934 classic screwball mystery the thin man which we had initially planned to do as a christmas episode because it takes place at christmas one of my favorite movies i love it so much so that should be very fun to talk about um a great movie to watch if you just want to have a nice entertaining time we are in the next week or two finally gonna do the television show patriot which we were supposed to record before i got sick with covid at the beginning of september if one of us gets sick with something then this officially does mean the Patriot curse is is real. Yeah. We also are hoping to record an episode on the 1930 film All Quiet on the Western Front, assuming it gets as many Oscar nominations as we are anticipating. Uh, The remake version, obviously. (laughs) Yes. Um, 1930 version also, I believe, won Best Picture, but that was quite some time ago. There is currently a remake that is getting lots of awards buzz that I refuse to watch, but in the interest of education, we will probably be talking about the original version at some point in the next few weeks. And yeah, if you would like to follow us on Patreon, hear our bonus episodes, including the one on The Thin Man, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. We also would greatly appreciate a rating and or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever other podcast service you use. A five-star review is particularly helpful in terms of visibility. And Gabia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Hello Taylor on Letterboxd and Tumblr. And technically speaking, still hello underscore Taylor on Twitter. Yes. And I am ML Davies on Letterboxd and Twitter question mark. I am also on Instagram at Morgan Lee Davies. Podcast is on Instagram at Overinvested Podcast. Uh, also on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast. Our Twitter is Overinvested Pod. And as always, you can find our website, which will include lots of links to the articles we've talked about in this episode at overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.